These are exciting days in our church right now. God, God just keeps bringing us so many new people. A lot of folks here today just sort of checking us out, and we appreciate that. So we've tried to spend about five weeks just going back to who we are. This is us. Just to be reminded of what God's called this church to do and, and to be. And so I thank you so much for being a part of that. Uh, we boiled it down to a mission and a vision statement. Our mission statement is to, to share the love. Here I go, man. This is bad after five weeks. Let me not look. To lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Amen? And then to be a community that shows the love of Jesus to people experiencing life struggles. You know, years before we had those two statements, that was the DNA of this church. 27 years ago, and Stephanie and I decided to move here. It's when we met with these four elders that were tired of playing church games. They were tired of fighting about nicky-nacky things. And they wanted to be a part of a church where people were actually coming to know Jesus. And they were willing to make whatever sacrifices of tradition or comfort it would take for this church to be that way. And I would say those four men were very true to their word. And, and so today, I want to remind us of who we are, and not just who we are, but what motivates us to be this way. So go back to that chapter we started with a couple moments ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In, in this chapter, people are saying that Paul is out of his mind. Wouldn't you love to be so fired up about Jesus that someone says they're out of their mind? And, and Paul's having to defend his motivation. So in what really this section of 2 Corinthians is what is commonly called Paul's handbook on ministry. And in this part, he's talking about what motivates him to reach people that are lost. And so let's start in just a moment in verse 11. But here, here's what I want to say to us, those at church, before we get into this passage. We, we got a challenge, and, and our challenge is this. Our challenge is, you know, as a church, we want to make sure we take care of each other, right? But on the other end, we want to, to reach out to others. Now, let's be honest about this. The in-reach part is very natural. You get a group of our folks together, sitting around a living room or in classroom, and we're naturally just going to love on each other and take care of each other. The challenging part is for you and I to go, we're going to reach out to other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why as a church, it seems to me, we have to constantly come back and focus this. If not, we'll lose the mission. I want to read you what's called the parable of the lighthouse, which makes it so vividly clear. I think you will immediately see the parallels. Let me read this. On a dangerous seacoast where the shipwrecks often occur, there was a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and had only one little boat and a few devoted members, and they kept constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves. They went out day or night tirelessly searching for the loss. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and others in the surrounding areas wanted to be associated with the station, and so they gave their time and their money and effort to support it. New boats were bought and new crews were trained, the little life-saving station grew. Now, some of the new members of the life-saving station became unhappy one day that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as a first refuge for those saved from the sea. 
So they replaced the emergency cots and beds with much better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they redecorated it lavishly. It almost became a clubhouse. But by now, less of the members were interested in going to sea on the life-saving mission. So they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. Yet the mission of life-saving was still given lip service, even though most of the members were either too busy or just lacked the necessary commitment to take part themselves. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and hungry people. Some were dirty and sick. Others spoke a strange language. Soon the beautiful new clubhouse was dirty and messy. So the property committee had a great idea. Let's build a shower outside the club where the victims of the shipwreck can be cleaned up before they come inside. At the next meeting, a split developed in the membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because it was an unpleasant hindrance just to the normal life of the club. Yet others insisted that life station saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the life of all kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could start their own station. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old station. Soon another club evolved, and yet another life-saving station was founded. And before you knew it, there were stations all up and down the seacoast. If you visit the seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. There are still an awful lot of shipwrecks along the coast. But now most of the people just drown. I don't know if you noticed that, but there's so many parallels to what can happen in a church that starts with such enthusiasm and such vision and such outreach that finally just becomes the comfortable place for us. If you study church growth, you'll see there's sort of a, a bellwether curve that most churches start with, with great vision and great mission, and, and they reach this apex. But then slowly on the other side of the curve, it begins to go down as they become more and more and more comfortable and lose the mission. I was reading about a church this week that just 10 years ago had 900 members. They shut their doors today because they had hardly any members left. It's happening all over the country. Well, how do you avoid that? My friends, the way you avoid that curve is that you constantly go back to the vision. You constantly go back to the mission of what you're about. And that's what the Apostle Pauls can do for us today. Not only go back to the mission, but tell us why we should be motivated to fulfill that mission. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. Here's where he starts. Since then, we know what it's like to fear the Lord. We try to persuade can't force anybody. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. The first motivation the Apostle Paul mentions is the fear of God. We know the wise men said in Proverbs 1 verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, we could try to play some uh, gymnastics here and say that the word fear here is not really fear. It's respect, but that's not true to the original language. It truly is fear. 
And this fear motivated Paul. But here's what you got to understand. Look at what the fear was. Go back to verse 10 that he referred to. He says here, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what's due for us for the things done in this body, whether good or bad. So it's the fear of God, he says, that motivates us. Now, here's what you've got to understand here. Paul is not fearful about his own salvation. He's completely secure in Christ. He's not saying, I'm going out to share because I'm scared I'm not going to heaven. No, 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 no. Paul's fear is that he knows the whole world will one day come under the judgment of God. And so he's fearful for the people of the world. And it motivates him to say, you know what I want to do? I want to go tell them about this. That was his motivation. Please understand this. Fear was the motivation to share. It was not the message. That's not what he went out and shared. Probably the most famous sermon in American history was delivered by a man named John, Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s. Here was the title. Fearful Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't think Paul would have ever preached that sermon. Paul would have preached sinners in the hands of a loving God. That was the message. And then we go on to his next motivation. Look at verse 14. He says, for Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul's greatest motivation was the love of God. He says this is what compelled him. One translation says this is what controlled him. What it literally means here is this is what mastered him. What took over Paul's life? What served as the motivation for everything he did? He could not get over a God who loved him so much to die for all. And so Paul is completely motivated by four words. One died for all. He was overcome with the knowledge that not only had God died for him, Jesus, he had died for everybody. Look at how Paul puts this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. The other great apostle of the first century, Peter said the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. No. Why is God patient? Why has Jesus not come back? Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's the love of God that motivates us. That God, every person we see, is somebody that God loves, who God wants to come to him and to be saved from their sins. Now, if you keep reading, that brings us to the next motivation. It's the way you look at people. Look at verse 16. Here's the the, the logical result of understanding that God loves everybody. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Paul says, you know what? When I first saw Jesus and didn't know who he was, I was trying to persecute him and shut down his cause. 
But when I got to know who Jesus was, not only did it change me, it changed my view of people. Paul says, from now on, I look at people the way Jesus did. You know, that's what blew the uptight religious leaders away in the first century, is that Jesus reached out to people they wouldn't reach out to. He reached out to the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors. I mean, Jesus loved everybody, and Jesus broke down those barriers. And for those of us that that have been loved by Jesus, we now are motivated by that love that's not just for us. And now it changes the way I look at everybody. You guys, just think about the way we, we size people up. It doesn't count in the kingdom of God anymore. I don't size people up by simply their economic background. I don't size people up by how attractive or unattractive I think they are, how athletic or unathletic they may be. I don't size people up by their skin color. I don't size people up simply by their political persuasion. I don't judge people simply by what sin struggle they may have. I don't judge anybody by what they can do or can't do for me. Let's get radical here. I don't even judge people by their favorite team, which is sort of hard for some of us this morning, right? My friend Santos wore his Longhorn shirt in here. Man, now he's shirtless, but he's. <laughs> but guys, just think how radical we are about this stuff. I was talking to somebody this week who just recently moved to Montgomery and had that experience everybody has that moves to Alabama. They, they, they went in their workplace. The first question they were asked is, do you pull for the red and white or the blue and orange? First thing. And so I've heard that over and over. Are you for Alabama or Auburn? Well, I don't know. Well, you got to choose Think how fanatical we are about that. We, we, we say, you, gotta, you, you can't live in this state and not, not declare some kind of allegiance. We just won't allow that. Now, just think with me for a second. How about if we were that motivated about whether people knew Jesus or not? Now, I, I don't know that I've been coming to somebody and say, hey, you for Jesus or Satan, choose right now. But in the back of our head, my friends, we need to be thinking that. Because really, all the other determinations really don't count at all. But what will count and what does count is are you in a safe relationship with Jesus Christ? And Paul says, now that I've been so radically changed by Jesus, i got to look at people this way. And I want to dare you. I want to dare you this week as you leave this place. Look at everyone you come in contact with through those lens. And then Paul says, here's what also motivates me. We got this incredible message. Let me start reading it in verse 18. He said, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We should hear an amen at this point. Uh, uh, You guys are pretty lame. Let's do it again. Not counting counting people's sins against them. Is that some good news? Is that good for you? It's good for me. God's not counting my sins against me. Listen to what he says here. And he's committed to us that message of reconciliation. We therefore are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, 
be reconciled to God. And guys, here's the gospel in one sentence. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the message. What does Paul say? I am motivated by this message of peace that God is reconciling people. That despite the fact our sins have separated us from God because God is so holy, under the grace of Jesus Christ, we're not charged for our sins anymore. It doesn't go to our account. The the theological word for this is imputation. Our sins are not imputed to us. They're imputed to Jesus. Remember when I was growing up, my, my grandmother lived in Rutledge, Alabama. Anybody been through Rutledge, Alabama down 331? Little town and... We loved our Granny Grace because we went to her house. We did anything we wanted to. We ate what we wanted to. We did what we wanted. And, and there was a little store in the middle of Rutledge called Thaggard's. And uh, any of us could drive down to Thaggard's or drive our bike down there, and we could go get anything we wanted and take it to the counter and say, charge this to my grandmother's account. And, and, and you, it would just work. And this is what's happening in Jesus. No matter what messed up thing you've done or you're involved in, if you'll come to Jesus, all you got to say is charge it to his account, not my account. That's the good news. And that's why we can be reconciled to Christ. And then another thing he mentioned, I hope you noticed, what also motivates us is the commission God's given us. Did, did you notice while we're reading that, the title God gave us? I love it. We are what? Ambassadors of Jesus Christ. What's an ambassador? An ambassador in our country is someone appointed by our president to represent our country in a foreign country. An ambassador is someone that when they speak on behalf of the United States of America, they speak with the authority of our country. And when Paul says, guys, God's given you this incredible title, this incredible privilege, you are the ambassador of Jesus Christ. We are living in a foreign country, and we represent Jesus. And when we speak his word, we speak the word of God. I'm telling you, the best days of my life are when before I get out of bed, I think to myself, Buddy Bell, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I challenge you this week. Remind yourself of that because, you you see, if you will remember who you are, that God has given you this incredible privilege, it's going to be a big deal when you go to school. It's going to be a big deal when you go to work because you go to represent Jesus. It's going to be a big deal when you're walking around your neighborhood because you are his ambassador. It's going to be a big deal everywhere you go because you're not representing you, you're representing Jesus. Man, that motivates you. What a great honor. And then one other motivation, going into chapter 6, he continues the same thoughts. He says, as ambassadors, guys, you're not even on your own. You're not doing this. You are God's co-worker. Look at it. As God's co-workers. Isn't that exciting? That's what I'm, I'm challenging you and challenging me to do. You don't walk out of here and you don't do it by yourself. You do it with the help of God. As God's co-worker, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. 
I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. The final motivation here in this passage is the urgency of today. If you read this in different translations, the one we just read in says, I urge you. Another translation says, I implore you. My favorite is, one translation says, I beg you. What's he saying? You need to believe today is the day of salvation. See, here's my guess about me and you. We all believe everything I've said to this point in this message. We understand the good news. We understand people need to come to Christ. We understand what's at stake. My problem is I'm not very urgent about it. I think, you know, you know, my life is really crazy busy right now, and one day my life can slow down enough that I can get out there and do that. Or, you know, for me to do this, you know, it's going to dirty things up in my life. It's going to be more people with more problems, you know, sort of like the life-saving station. And let's, let's just put it off till to, to, to we can do that. My friends, the Apostle Paul is really clear here, and we don't say this much in church anymore, but today is the day of salvation, this is just as true as it was years ago when preachers said this quite often. In view of everything that we've been through as a church over the last few weeks, today might be your last day. Today may be the last day for your friend or relative. And even if it's not the last day in the sense of what we've been experiencing around here of people in a unusual time passing away, it might just be the day Jesus comes back. We don't know. Even Jesus said, it's like a thief in the night. It's going to shock us when it happens. And so what Paul says is one thing that motivates me is I know there's an urgency. You know, this week we're preparing for friend day, and friend day's a big day around here. If you're new to us, I hope you understand this. When you walk out of here, we're going to be giving out invitation cards. And to me, this is one of the most exciting weeks of the year for us because this makes it so easy. We're starting a theme next Sunday called, Thank God It's Monday. Most of us are used to saying, Thank God It's Friday. But if we understand God's will for us, we're going to thank God it's Monday. Whether you show up at a school or you show up in your home to raise your children or you show up at your workplace. And so here's what's so easy. Is when you give this invitation card out this week, what you're saying to somebody is, hey, you know what? You're my friend and we're having friend day at church this Sunday. It would really honor me if you'd come. In fact, we got some great things to share. Don't invite the way we often, you know, I'd like you to come to church. I mean, I really don't like doing this, but Buddy told me to. And, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of bored people, but you can at least come be bored with us. I mean, you know, don't do that. What you got, man, what I've got is we, you're inviting someone to come begin to encounter the most exciting news they could ever hear. So this is not even asking you to be very bold. This is asking you to, to be present and take a bunch of cards with you and stick them on people's desk. See, do you need motivation this morning? Look at all the different motivations the Apostle Paul has given us. Look at that list from the fear of God, the love of God, our view of people, the message of peace, the commission of God, the urgency of today. I, I like what... The message translation says at the end of this, this is why we work diligently with everyone we meet 
to get them ready to meet Christ. Did you hear that? That's pretty powerful. This is why we work diligently with everyone we meet to get them ready to meet God. I used to tell a story years ago, then I want to add an addendum to it. It always motivated me. It was a story when Steve Jobs first founded Apple Computer. In fact, when I first started telling the story, I called him Steve Jobs. I didn't even know how to pronounce it. It was just a very little-known company, and it was a fledgling company. Most people didn't think Apple would make it. So he decided to go after the greatest marketeer in America, which happened to be a man named John Scully, who worked for Pepsi. And Scully had done this new advertising theme called the Pepsi Generation, and for the first time in history, Pepsi passed Coca-Cola in sales. So he was awesome. So Steve Jobs decides, I need this guy. I got a great product, but nobody's buying it. So he goes to John Scully and says, will you come work for Apple Computer? I'll pay you this money. I'll do it. Nope. He said, you think I'm going to leave Pepsi to work for this? Nobody even knows about this. And he kept turning him down over and over again. Despite all the money and all the benefits he could offer him, he kept turning him down. And finally, Steve Jobs came to John Scully and asked him this question. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want the opportunity to change the world? And John Scully chose to change the world, and the rest is history. But I would back up a moment now and add to the story. Someone along the line needed to ask Steve Jobs a question. Because this is a comment he made to a magazine before he passed away. He said, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life was the epitome of success. However, outside of work, I had no joy. I think someone who loved him should have said, Steve, you know, spend the rest of your life building computers that change this world? Or do you want to be a part of something that changes the eternal world? And the invitation that God is giving you and I is that we be a part of something better than selling sugared water, something better than whatever you do at your job, something better at producing the most advanced computers and phones in the world. We're challenged, we're invited to be a part of something that's world and eternal life changing. So today, if you need us to pray for your motivation, You you know everything I'm saying is right, but you're just not living motivated. You need some prayers before you walk out of here. Or this morning, you know, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. I want to take you back to that, that great passage that will say it all to you. He who had no sin, that's Jesus, became sin, that's on the cross, so that in him we, that's us, might become the righteousness of God. If today's the day for you to surrender your life to Jesus, to be buried and resurrected to a new life, it can happen today because today is the day of salvation. Please come right now while we stand and sing.